Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a fresh look at how the hospitality sector is doing statewide and Minnesota native and NASCAR executive Eric Nyquist. But first... This whole special session and this whole exercise of, of, of considering confirmations is a joke and a disgrace and a sham. It is not a sham or a joke to take our Constitution seriously. Like a lot of three-year-olds... We all need a timeout. It was a contentious ending to the extended special session with state Senate Democrats accusing Republicans of abuse of power and Republicans accusing Democrats of political theater. The extended special session was meant to confirm or not confirm several of Governor Tim Walz's commissioner appointees, and it resulted in the resignation of Minnesota Pollution Control Agency Commissioner Laura Bishop. To make sense of it all, we spoke with Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear. Well, basically, the Senate Republicans have decided not to fight about any uh, other commissioners for the time being uh, now that they have succeeded in getting the resignation of uh, Commissioner who they objected to yesterday. Um, So they're going to keep their powder dry, and it would seem that the conflicts that uh, we saw throughout this year between the uh, Senate Republicans and uh, the governor are at least temporarily uh, in abeyance. You know, with regard to the debate on the Senate floor, it it seemed like... uh well, it didn't seem like it was very contentious. We had a Democrats accusing Republicans of political theater and kind of holding the process hostage. Um, Republicans, especially Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, saying, you know, it was too busy during the regular session with COVID and then getting the budget bills together. It was too busy a time to actually consider the confirmations. Uh, does does one side or the other come out the winner in this situation? Uh, well, in this situation, I think what you see is that the Democrats saw an opportunity to uh, uh, challenge the agenda of of the Senate Republicans. Senate Republicans have had a rough year because they essentially had to fight off a bunch of Democratic initiatives, which they did to a certain extent, but agreed to big spending increases that probably give them some trouble with some of their activist base, and they're looking for a way to fight back. (laughs) And one way to fight back is regarding commissioner appointments. And so there was an element of political theater in that. Uh, One of the main objectives that Democrats didn't necessarily get across the finish line this time was police reform, and that is, I'm anticipating, going to be a key issue moving forward. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you see that playing out in the future. It doesn't appear as though either side is going to move one way or the other on this very heated issue. This is an issue that uh, is going to really shape state politics for the next year or two. Uh, uh, One of the key things will be this November 2nd when we have these uh, elections in the city of Minneapolis. That, I think, will send a signal to politicians throughout the state about where the crime issue is and where the police reform issue is. If the council members uh, who have been pressing for police reform win re-election and are in control of the council, Democrats will, I think, feel uh, more uh, 
uh, momentum behind a poli- additional measures for police reform. If, uh, on the other hand, there seems to be a movement away from those incumbent uh, mini- Minneapolis council members, I think Republicans will seize the crime issue and try and use that uh, in the 2022 elections. You know, we've covered this particular topic in the past with regard to the divided legislature. You know, we had lawmakers uh, on the Senate floor accusing uh, Democrats, accusing Republicans of uh, not being trustworthy and not keeping their word and it, with regard to having an extended special session. What does this show us about having a divided legislature when we keep having special sessions, we keep having contentious sessions? Is that just uh, the way it's going to be in Minnesota for the foreseeable future? Well, I think we have to understand why we did get this budget agreement. And we got this budget agreement thanks to the state Supreme Court. In 2017, they issued a ruling saying that money can only be spent through legislative appropriations, that if uh, there's no agreement in divided government and the new fiscal year begins, previously judges could order spending. And now judges cannot, and the government really does literally shut down if uh, there's not a spending agreement uh, by the beginning of the fiscal year on July 1st. That really forces the legislature and the governor, despite their big agenda differences, to agree on a state budget. And that's what happened this year. However, we should not get the idea that all of a sudden the stark differences between Republicans and Democrats in this state have disappeared. No, they're very evident. Uh, they will be evident going forward, and it's only the threat of a real and total government shutdown that uh, keeps them agreeing to anything. Uh, and with that in mind, what are you expecting to see come election time? Well, uh, I think you have to wonder what issues, both nationally and at the state level, will be on voters' minds in the next election. Um, Will it be uh, police reform? Will it be crime? Police reform is a democratic issue. Uh, Supporting the police, uh, uh, funding the police, fighting crime, that would be a Republican issue. Uh, Will the economy be uh, booming? If so, uh, that actually uh, helps uh, incumbents, I think, of both parties. Uh, but particularly would help Governor Waltz, I think, in running for re-election. And then we have to see how popular the Democratic uh, government at the national level is and how that translates into uh, state electoral results. So there are a whole bunch of things that can influence the 2022 election results. Thank you to my guest, Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. 
Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The hospitality industry is slowly but surely bouncing back following the COVID-19 restrictions that were imposed over the last year. Tasha Radel has more. As more and more COVID-19 limits are lifted, Minnesotans are getting back into their pre-pandemic routines. This includes dining out, taking a vacation, going to a concert, and attending a ball game. Joining me today is Ben Wogsland with Hospitality Minnesota. So Ben, things seem to be headed in the right direction. What are you hearing and seeing across the state? Well, uh, first of all, uh, people are very excited to obviously be getting back open to full capacity and to doing what they do best and, you know, hosting Minnesotans and creating hospitality experiences where we can gather and, and, uh, and enjoy great outdoors and enjoy food together. So I think there's a lot of optimism in that regard. Um, Demand is really strong uh, all across the straight all across the state right now for uh, travel and uh, and what have you. I think you know the two biggest challenges facing the industry uh, are number one, you know, a lot of folks took on quite a bit of debt over the last year, uh, you know, due to the shutdowns or due to COVID conditions, and so trying to dig out of that uh, over the next uh, 12 to 18 months or longer is going to make this a multi-year recovery for many hospitality businesses. So even though they're getting back to full capacity right now, and, and again, demand is strong, um, there is a concern that it's going to take some time to, to, to try to get back, dig out from that debt, especially because it is an industry with, with thinner profit margins or thinner margins than your average small business. A lot of restaurants typically operating at only a 2 to 5% margin compared to like a 10% margin for a typical small business. So uh, that makes it more challenging to, to dig out from that debt that they uh, accumulated over the last year and trying to, to stay afloat. Um, and then number two, we are concerned about some of the challenges around finding labor and finding workforce and some of the shortage there that that could potentially suppress the speed and, and depth of, of the recovery as well. Ben, let's talk about the labor force. It seems a number of sectors are having a hard time uh, finding workers to fill the open positions. If you look at the jobs numbers right now, the hospitality industry is still down about 50,000 workers from pre-pandemic. So that's obviously a really significant number and concerning. Uh, We know that, uh, you know, quite a few uh, workers left the industry, you know, either during the shutdowns or uh, at different times of the year last year and, and had to go and find a different job or make a lateral move. And so, um, you know, that's a concern in terms of putting more pressure on labor availability. Uh, you know, we also know that this was an industry that even before the pandemic had a structural worker shortage. And so um, all of these things that and then, you know, potentially the, the current uh, federal benefits might be uh, disincentivizing some from coming back as fast uh, to the workforce. So those things uh, and then some of the immigration visa caps at the federal level, it, it all is kind of creating a, a perfect storm of of pressure on 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 that workforce. And so while we know that, 
you know, 90% of hospitality businesses are hiring over the summer, uh, the vast, vast majority, majority of them are saying that it's very, very tight. 65% in a recent survey said that the market was very tight for, for workers and labor and, and more said it was somewhat tight or slightly tight. So, uh, that's going to continue to be a challenge. And again, we're, uh, concerned that that could potentially slow down the rate at which these folks can recover because, you know, they're having to turn away business or having to maybe lit hours at, at the restaurant or food service spaces. Uh, so we're watching that closely and, and ho- hoping that, uh, that that can be solved here over the medium term to help people get back quicker. So I think it's safe to say while we're on the right track, the recovery is going to take a little longer than most had hoped for. Yeah, we're looking at a two-year two-year recovery. Obviously, there's some that are going to come back faster. We've seen, obviously, some of the resorts or and campgrounds are seeing some solid business, and some of them saw some solid business last summer as well. Uh, you, know, you know, hotels that are linked to the greater outdoors uh, had, you know, maybe had some more robust travel over last summer than than other places in the state. Um, so there's a, a bit of a mixed bag. But in general, we know that, again, a lot of those food service businesses and some of the hotels and motels and what have you that that really did, you know, were shut down for much of la- the last year and, and had to take on a lot of debt to continue to pay their, uh, you know, rent and mortgage, utilities, insurance taxes, all those things kept on coming while they were closed or limited. So uh, it is going to be a a longer time for them to dig out, even though they're back at 100% capacity. Thanks again to my guest, Ben Wogsland with Hospitality Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Last month, the Sports Business Journal named NASCAR as the Pro Sports League of the Year for the first time ever. One of the driving forces behind NASCAR's big year is a Minnesota native. Eric Nyquist grew up in Albert Lee and went to college at Carleton in Northfield, where he played college football. He's now the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications and Social Responsibility Officer for NASCAR. He helped them become the first sport to get back to competition out of the pandemic, the first sport to allow fans at events and, even more importantly, led a sweeping change in NASCAR's general attitude towards social justice issues. It was a big year. MN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Nyquist for Minnesota Matters about his sport winning the prestigious national award. It's a tremendous honor. In the world of sports, the Sports Business Awards have been an annual tradition across the business of sports for several decades. And uh, League of the Year is the highest honor you can get in the Sports Business Awards. And it's the first time we at NASCAR have, have ever won the awards. And coming off the year that we had, that everyone had in sports, it's tremendous validation for the work that we did and including a lot of the change that we drove that's really changed the trajectory of our sport long term. We were at a time and we still are certainly in in, in areas of, of some social unrest. Obviously Minneapolis was the epicenter of that here, your home state. Uh, take me through what that was like navigating that because I think some of that probably falls under your purview and, and what growth area you'd like to continue to see uh, from that regard in NASCAR. You know, if you take a step back and you think about motorsports at large, to compete in motorsports, it's about, you know, having the heart of a racer, having the skill to handle a vehicle, having a team of individuals that help that car go as fast as possible. From the engineering of the vehicle to the design to the pit crew, you know, it takes an eclectic group of a variety of diverse set of skills to come together. You know, everything I just touched on, it has nothing to do with your gender 
where you're from, whether you're big or small, the color of your skin, how you love, how you worship. I mean, racing's racing. And that's a core equity that our sport at NASCAR, we'd fa- we had failed to avail ourselves to. And through that, you know, we missed out on the development and, and the fans that I think we could have for our sport. And, you know, this is something we've, we've had to face for a number of years. And, and through what transpired for our country, we felt like the moment was right to take this on. And, and we made a bold step. We banned the Confederate flag, you know, lock, stock, and barrel across our facilities, our properties, at our events, you know, every way, shape, and form. And that was a big step for us. It was one that created a lot of noise, but it vaulted us forward into a new space that I think a lot of people in our sport didn't fully appreciate the upshot for us. But we're feeling it now, Mike. Mm -hmm. You know, we banned the Confederate flag. Two weeks after that, we had, you know, folks circling uh, Talladega Raceway outside our property with the Confederate flag held up highly behind their um, their pickup trucks and motorcycles. We had it flying over the top of the facility. And then, you know, as you all know, we discovered a noose in Bubba Wallace's garage. You know, fortunately, we were able to discern that that noose was not aimed at Bubba Wallace per se, but that noose had been in place. And it was a noose, eight coils deep, you know, so much so that when the FBI saw an image of it, you know, they sent 15 agents. Mm-hmm. We're grateful that that wasn't targeted at Bubba, but it, it raised another larger question. You know, how is it that you could have a noose hanging in your garage for several months without anyone noticing? And I, I do want to clarify one thing, because there's a number of folks uh, and fans who were like, ah, it was a garage pull, whatever. I will tell you, Mike, we examined every single garage across all our tracks, across our three national series. So we looked at over 1,200 garages that are pulled down by a rope. Of those over 1,200 strings, only 11 were tied in any type of knot, and only one was tied as a noose. Mm. And that just happened to be that stall at Talladega that weekend that Bubba Wallace was driving in. So an incredibly unfortunate set of circumstances. But um, to see how our garage and our drivers rallied behind Bubba Wallace in light of the events that were going around Talladega with the Confederate flag flying overhead, pickup trucks driving around with it, not on our property but outside the facility, you know, our industry and our drivers made very clear who we are and what the heart of a racer really is. And that has nothing to do with hate and excluding people from being a part of it. So to make that stance and to do that, you know, it, it led the way for a number of things. You know, on the heels of that, we had fans, you know, coming out of the woodwork saying, if that's who you are, we want to be a part of your sport, including some incredibly influential folks. And that begat conversations that we were able to have that led to Michael Jordan becoming a team owner, Pitbull becoming a team owner. You know, Alvin Kamara, all-pro running back, who, while he's not running up six touchdowns on my Minnesota Vikings, <laughs> he was my guest at races. So he came, he's been to now six races. He's now working with us as our growth advisor. I mean, this is, and how did it come from? Because Alvin loves racing, but, you know, wasn't sure whether or not NASCAR was for him. Well, we made a signal to the market that our sport is about being welcome and inclusive. If you got the heart of a racer, no matter the color of your skin, how you love, how you worship, where you're from, we want you to be a part of our sport. Full stop. And for folks that aren't comfortable with that, that's fine. That's fine. We don't need you a part of our sport. But for people who love racing, and, and I'm happy to tell you, the uber majority of our fans, that's what they're about. They love racing. They love evangelizing our sport to new fans. And they've embraced it. And it's been a incredibly gratifying, you know, the proudest moment of my career, candidly, Mike haven't had a chance to work across a variety of properties and things. To be a part of 
the work that we did to ban the Confederate flag, to eliminate that symbol of division and hate, and to signal to everybody that what we're about is we're about racing, we're about family, we're about people who love that. And if you're good with that, we want you here. You know, what we've seen is last year, most sports dropped, you know, double digits in ratings. You know, NASCAR, which had been losing ratings year after year, last year when, you know, the best sport was the NFL was down 12%, you know, and everything else from there was down 20, 30, 40%. Here was NASCAR up 2%. You can't make it up. The growth that we've had in fan development, the growth that we've had in ratings and in consumption across digital platforms has been tremendous validation of the decision we made. And, you know, if anything, I'm just sad we didn't make that move earlier. And that's NASCAR Senior Vice President Eric Nyquist, an Albert Lee native, along with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. More Minnesota Matters when we return. Did you know that more lives are lost to lung cancer each year than breast, colorectal, and prostate cancers combined? Lung cancer will claim more than 135,000 lives this year. But new treatments have improved survival for many with the disease and offer new hope for many more. So does lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. The American Cancer Society and most major professional organizations recommend that adults ages 55 and older with a long history of smoking, even if they have quit, should talk with their doctor to learn more about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening saves lives by detecting lung cancer early when it's more successfully treated. So, ask your doctor if lung cancer screening is right for you. And if you smoke, ask your doctor to help you quit. Visit the National Lung Cancer Roundtable website at nlcrt.org. That's nlcrt.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's probably a fair bet that many Minnesotans have been turning over in their minds what happened weeks ago in a Minneapolis courtroom when ex-officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for the murder of George Floyd Eminem's Bill Werner admits he's among those who have cried, sighed, and wondered. In a season that has finally ended, or perhaps it has only begun, we here in Minnesota have pushed hard against the limits of human understanding. As sentenced for count one, the court commits you to the custody of the Commissioner of Corrections for a period of 270 months. That's 270. The sentence was clear, but the act that prompted it Despite the tireless work of our system of justice, despite our best human efforts, we somehow still cannot completely grasp. He's placed face down on this pavement so harshly that it rubs the skin off his face. He has injuries to his knuckles from just trying to, to lift himself up. And he's telling Officer Chauvin, I can't breathe, I'm dying. And the accused? He's not coming into this as a career criminal. He's coming into this never having violated the law because he lived an honorable life and he attempted to live an honorable life. What the sentence is not based on is emotion or sympathy, but at the same time I want to acknowledge the deep and tremendous pain that all the families are feeling, especially the Floyd family. You have our sympathies. And I acknowledge and hear 
the pain that you are feeling. I'm not going to attempt to be profound or clever because it's not the appropriate time. I'm not basing my sentence also on public opinion. I'm not basing it on any attempt to send any messages. A trial court judge, the job of a trial court judge, is to apply the law. It is a strange paradox that the lady we name justice, blindfolded, the scales before her to decide if they are balanced or if they are tipped, that she must also set aside emotion, the very thing that made this struggle necessary in the first place. And in our all-too-human system of justice, hopefully sincere but still imperfect, a fundamental challenge remains to try to see what is inside the human mind, or even more than that, in the heart. The media, public, and prosecution team believe Derek to be an aggressive, heartless, and uncaring person. I want this court to know that none of these things are true and that my son is a good man. Derek has played over and over in his head the events of that day. I've seen the toll it has taken on him. I believe a lengthy sentence will not serve Derek well. When you sentence my son, you will also be sentencing me. There might be only one person who knows for certain, perhaps even better than the defendant himself. That being the man who said to the assembled accusers all those centuries ago, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Not one muscle moved. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. It is not told whether she did. I wanted to know from the man himself why. What were you thinking? What was going through your head when you had your knee on my brother's neck? I uh, want to give my condolences to the Floyd family. Um, there's going to be some other information in the future that would be of interest, and uh, I hope things will give you some some peace of mind. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. 
Thank you, Bill. And that is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. <laughs>